invite you to open your Bible with me this morning to a familiar text from John, Gospel, chapter 3, and we'll read that in a few moments. And uh, in January of 1986, Mindy and I accepted a call to our first pastorate, and it was in the western part of the state of Kentucky in a place called Providence, Kentucky, Webster County. I was 25 years old. Mindy was 24. We had our first uh, daughter. Uh, she was uh, 30 days old, and so we accepted the call, moved to that church, and I was pretty eager, pretty excited about pastoring. I, I also didn't tell people, but I was a nervous wreck also about doing, trying to do that, and we hadn't been there but a couple of months, and one of the first challenges surfaced. It was a doctrinal issue um, regarding the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. We had some members prior to our arrival who decided to travel about 30 miles north to Evansville, Indiana, and there was a signs and wonders crusade there, and so mostly women a van full of them, a few men, but they drove to Evansville and they went to this crusade, and I won't tell you the guy's name who was heading this thing up, and they paid $20 a piece or whatever for tickets, and they got in there, and they went to a signs and wonders crusade, and man, they got fired up. I mean, they were fired up, and they came back to the church, and they were just on fire for the Lord, and so they they had an agenda, and their agenda was they're going to change the church, which means they're going to change people. They were going to do that. And so they started doing something, during, some things during a worship service and drawing attention to themselves, and they were going to free things up, and they started doing some things in the services, outside the service, and it was causing quite the division in the church. And so... It was a challenge. What would you do? What would you do? And so I decided I'd meet with all of these people. And I think I've alluded to this story before, and it didn't go well. Uh, they were placing exp their experience above the scriptures. And one brother said to me, he said, I don't care what that says. I know what I've experienced. And I thought, well, I don't know where to go from here when you're placing experience over the scriptures. And so... Um, it was a challenge. And even though I'd been through Bible college and seminary, most of my study uh, was pretty academic, and I really didn't know how to take what I knew from the Scriptures and how to apply it into that context. And so I did the only thing that I knew to do is I began to seek God and dig into His Word, and literally this went on for months and months. And and uh, those, most of those people end up leaving the church. It was about, I don't remember, Mindy, maybe 15 or 20 people, and they left the church, and which is not what you want to happen, see happen when you go, go to, a, to a new church. And so they left, and, and I was pretty discouraged. But looking back on that, for that six months to year period, I was digging into the word, and I was pulled out of concordance in any place the Bible said anything about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. I was writing notes, and I was digging, and I was studying everything that I knew to study. I was reading every book about the Holy Spirit that I could get my hands upon, and God used that time 
uh, to produce a change in me because through it all, it deepened my walk with Jesus and I came to know and understand more about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to start a series of messages regarding the Holy Spirit, what it's like to walk in the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. And so for this rest of this summer, for about the next 10 or 12 weeks, I'd like to dig through the Scriptures with you, and I pray that you will, uh, this, this, these messages will affect your life, will deepen your walk and your intimacy with the Holy Spirit. And so one of the lessons that I learned through this is the Christian life will not work it will not work. In fact, it's impossible to live apart from the person and the power of the Holy Spirit, which is why Jesus, after he had been, uh, before he had been, uh, went to the cross, he told his disciples, he said, now, and he prepared them for it. He said, now, when I go to the cross, I'm going to die. He said, but I, I don't want you to engage in the mission yet. I want you to stay here, to tarry in Jerusalem until my replacement comes. And when my replacement comes, then you shall receive power. And when that power comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses here. Start where you are, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then go to the other ends of the earth. But don't do that until the Spirit comes. And when he comes, then you'll be ready. So tarry. And I'm not completely convinced today that most Christians really know how to live a spirit-filled life. I remember I was in college, and my, the guy that I was rooming with, his name was Tim, and we had been, been friends for years, and we were rooming together, and we got into it one night in our dorm room. I mean, physically, we got into it, and at the end of it, we both kind of just sat on the floor, and... And it was a pretty emotional time, and um, I was pretty angry at him. He was pretty angry at me over some things. And we both sat there, though, after at the end of that, and I remember we just started talking. And he said, Charlie, he said, I can't do it. I cannot do it. I've tried to live for Christ. I've tried to do things, and I just, I'm defeated. I just cannot live for Christ. I have failed over and over again. Can any of you ever relate to that? I didn't know what to tell him. Looking back on that, he didn't know how to walk in the Spirit. He didn't know how to live a Spirit-filled life, and he was defeated. And I wonder if there's any of you who might be able to relate to that. And so my aim, my prayer is that this journey would bless you and that your intimacy with the Holy Spirit would deepen. And so read with me John's Gospel, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. John Chapter 3, starting in verse 1, a very, very familiar text. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, or very verily, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, most assuredly, 
I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, or why do you marvel that I said to you, you must be born again? The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to Jesus, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Nicodemus, are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not know these things? Pray with me just for a moment. Father, we're grateful for your presence, and we're grateful that you have revealed Jesus, your son, to us, and we're thankful that you've revealed yourself to us through your word. And our prayer is that your Holy Spirit would teach us today more of who you are and that you would produce by your Spirit, your presence and your power, new desires in us, your desires that would lead us to greater transformation. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice a few things from this text. Jesus wants Nicodemus to know about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Look down in verse 10. Keep your Bible open. Notice what Jesus says to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you are a Pharisee. You are a ruler. You're a teacher of the law. And he raises a question. Nicodemus, how then is it that you don't understand anything about the Holy Spirit? which is perhaps a relevant question for us. The Old Testament was full of stories, full of teaching about the Holy Spirit, about the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God wasn't something new that occurred on Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, but the Spirit of God has always existed, and, and there was much written about the Spirit, how He often worked, and how the Holy Spirit worked and moved in extraordinary ways. You frequently read about the Holy Spirit, how He came upon His servants and gave them power and strength and wisdom, how the Spirit of God would deliver messages to His servants and how He would provide direction and answers to prayer. Uh, on Thursday mornings, the men's Bible study here at the church, we've been going through Judges 13 through 16 and studying the life of Samson, and you see it in, even in Samson. The Spirit of God came upon Samson and strengthened him and empowered him. And so the, the teaching, the activity of the Spirit of God wasn't new. And Jesus says, how is it that you, a teacher, a teacher of the law, you don't understand things about the Spirit? He should have known. He should have understood some of what Jesus was saying, but he didn't. He should have been familiar with Ezekiel chapter 36. Let me read that, that to you. Ezekiel chapter 36. I, I marked it here, but he should have known this. Listen to what, what God says. Um, and the context of this is uh, 
God is speaking through the prophet Ezekiel about a coming day when, the, when, the war, when his spirit will be poured out and he would bring revival and renewal to Israel. And Nicodemus should have known this. Listen to Ezekiel 36. God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will take out of you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I'll remove a stony heart and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in all of my statutes and judgments and you will keep them and do them. Nicodemus should have known that. Should have known that text. He should have known about the work of the Holy Spirit. He should have known about uh, this prophecy about the Holy Spirit. One day when he's poured out, he will come. He should have known Joel too, that God was going to pour out his spirit and produce change in, the, in his people. But the problem was there was no word from the Lord. No word from the Lord. Because from the time of Malachi until the events leading up to the birth of Christ, the Bible says there was no word from the Lord for 400 years. Can you imagine? God did not speak for 400 years. No revelation, no prophecy, no word from God. And so when God doesn't speak, there's no word from the Lord, no revelation from the Lord. You can imagine that things get pretty dry and lifeless and dull and orthodox. And so that was the state of Israel. That was certainly the state of Nicodemus as a teacher of the law. The reality is if God doesn't speak, then just like if he doesn't speak today or if he speaks today, and Jesus said in John 10, my sheep know me, they know my voice, but if God doesn't speak or if we as a sheep don't know his voice and we don't receive a word from the Lord, the same thing will happen to us individually and collectively as a church. Our lives will become pretty dry and lifeless and dead. And then there's really no energy, no passion, no drive, no enthusiasm, no, no joy, no worship. And so it's not really that difficult to understand why Nicodemus didn't know much about the Holy Spirit. He was just in a, he should have, but he didn't. At least give him some credit. He does recognize that there's something pretty unique and special about Jesus. He's curious. He's pretty open. And so he came to Jesus to engage him with some questions. John records that he, he approaches Jesus at night. The reason perhaps is he's not sure he wants to be openly associated with Jesus yet. Which I would say this to you. If you and I don't get past that issue... If Nicodemus wasn't really sure he wanted people to associate him with Jesus and as being a disciple, he still is kind of stealthy. He comes by night. And, and listen, one of the key issues for personal discipleship, we got to get to a place where we, we, we want to be associated with Jesus. We want to be known as his followers. Very open. No, no closet Christians. No stealthy Christians. But to be salt, to be light, to be associated, if I'm a coach, if I'm a, a business guy, and a tech guy, I'm a teacher, construction worker, I want people to know who, whose I am, to be open. No stealthy Christians, and so that needs to be settled. And so before going through the text, Lord, I want to just raise a couple of things with you, and then we'll work, finish up through the text and, and kind of land the plane and bring some application. But I want you to consider a couple of things with me. First, who is the Holy Spirit? How would you describe that 
If someone were to ask you that question, well, let me share three things with you about the Holy Spirit. Number one, he is a unique person. He is a person of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is not a thing. The Holy Spirit is not an influence, nor just a power. He's not the force like you hear about and when you watch in Star Wars movies. May the force be with you. That's, that's not the Holy Spirit. In the Bible, you, you never see the Holy Spirit being described as it came upon them, it taught them, the force filled them. But Jesus always refer, refers to the Holy Spirit as he and him and his personally. Listen to what Jesus says about the Spirit in John chapter 16, just a couple of places. In verse 7, he says, I tell you, disciples, the truth It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness of judgment. And so he's described personally. Further down in John 16, verse 13 through 15, listen how he personally. When he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come, and he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so he's personal. I sometimes have, find myself having thoughts to stop referring to the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit. Do you ever, you ever have a thought like that? Maybe I shouldn't be referring to him as the Holy Spirit. Instead, maybe I should just refer to him as Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? I never refer to my wife as the Mindy. <laughs> or I just say Mind or Mindy. Because she's personal. However, if I'm referring to her and what she does, then I might use the, uh, for example, the brains of the team or the same one or the organizer or the stabilizer, the, but... In everyday conversation, I just call her men, her bud. I don't know if that helps you, if that confuses you. I'm just trying to make a point. He's personal, and he has knowledge. He knows things, right? First Corinthians 1, the Spirit reveals the deep things of God. He has knowledge. The, the Holy Spirit uh, has a will. He wills things. The Holy Spirit has emotions. We can grieve the Spirit. We can, the Holy Spirit feels, and so he's, he's personal. That's, that's the point I'm trying to make. And in John's Gospel in chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus tells the disciples, I'm praying for you, and my Father is going to send my replacement, a comforter, the counselor, the helper. He's our, which is the second thing I want to share with you, he's the paraclete. He is personal. He the Holy Spirit wants to relate to you in a personal way, and he's the paraclete. He's our advocate. He's our ally. He's on our side. He's, the Holy Spirit is working on your behalf. He's working for you. Uh, I like to watch boxing matches, and I, I was flipping channels a week or so ago, and I was looking back at the old, old fights between Frazier and Ali, Ali, you know, the Thrilla and Manila, and those are some classics, and I like watching those fights. And Frazier and Ali both had a corner man, right? Boxers have corner, 
corner men. And during the fight, the, the guy in the corner is going to shout out advice. Hey, move, jab. To the body, to the body. Use your left. Don't wait. Get out of the corner. Get out of the corner. Moving in between rounds, the corner man will coach them. Come on, breathe. Breathe. And the corner man will let them know how they're doing. They'll affirm things they're doing well, and then they'll correct things they're not doing right, and they'll say, remember the strategy. Remember the strategy. Listen, that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is your corner man. And at the end of texts or emails that I like to send to our family, I almost always end texts or emails with mending the kids with two things. I love you, and I'm in your corner. Dad's always in your corner. Corner man. That's the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit comes alongside. Actually, the paraclete indwells us, and his purpose is to strengthen us and to counsel us and to teach us and to encourage us and to empower us and strengthen us. In Luke, Acts chapter 9 and 31, Luke says all of the churches, all of God's people throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria, they had peace and they were edified, they were strengthened. And it says they walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Whenever we think of comfort, we think of soft blankets and soft towels and a big cushy couch or pillow top on top of a mattress or something that you fall back into or sink down into or lay down on its comfort. It's cushy. It's soft. Do you, do you, do you all have those, I don't know what they're called. There's a name. But those little blankets they started selling a few years ago and kind of keep on the end of your couch. Man, they're just, you don't talk to just, they, they, they feel like a little baby's behind against your face, you know, just, just so soft. Man, I I like it in the winter when it's kind of cool and you come home at night and you put on some sweatpants or t-shirt and you just sit on the couch and you get that little cushy, soft blanket, you know? Isn't that, isn't that comforting? And then you watch television, get something to snack on, you know, that's just comforting. That's just, right, that's good. Well, the Holy Spirit's job is to not to make your life or my life soft or cushy. That's, that's not his, that's, I mean, he's with us to comfort us, and, but his role is not to make my life and your life as a disciple easy or comfortable. Rather, he's the one who takes our case, who is fighting for us. He's in the ring with us there to counsel us and correct us and convict us and encourage us and teach us because as disciples, we're in a battle, we're in a war. We get saved, we not, we're not saved to to a cushy life on the couch. We're not saved just to sit on a cushy pew on Sunday morning, amen? That's not the role of the Holy Spirit. He's a person, he's personal, he's a paraclete. And third, he's also the third person of the Trinity. Second Corinthians 3.17 says, now the Spirit, the Spirit of God is the Lord, and the Lord is the Spirit, which means the Holy Sp Spirit possesses all of the same attributes and the qualities and characteristics of God. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent, right? He's at all places at all times. The psalmist said, right, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take up the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, you're with me, your right hand shall lead me and hold me. 
Holy Spirit is omnipresent. The Holy Spirit is omniscient. The Holy Spirit knows all things, knows everything that God knows. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered the heart or the mind of man. The things that God has in store for those who love him. What things? He goes on to say the deep things of God. And he has revealed these deep spiritual things, these things of God to us through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is omnipotent. He has all power. Romans 8, 11 said it is the Spirit of God who even raised Jesus from the dead in power. The Holy Spirit is one with God in essence, but distinct in person. The Holy Spirit is one with Jesus, but also distinct in person. In Genesis, God who spoke everything into existence is the same as the Spirit who moved over the face of the deep. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit are unifying, working together in all aspects of creation, including the creation of man. The Bible says we were, he says, created in our image, made in our likeness. Clearly, Trinitarian references that the Spirit is fully God. So the Holy Spirit is person, personal, he is our paraclete, and he is the third person of the Godhead, one with the Father, one with the Son, but fully distinct as well. And then I'd like for you to consider with me what is the role of the Holy Spirit. Well, there's many roles, many purposes of the Holy Spirit in your life and mine, but I want to, and we'll get to those later in the series, but I want to just emphasize one main role of the Holy Spirit, one main role, one role that is of the Holy Spirit that is far exceeds all other roles. And that main role is to bring glory to Jesus. To bring glory to Jesus. Listen to John 16 again. Verses 13 and 14. However, when he, the Spirit, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Kind of describing some roles here. And he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he's going to tell you all things, guide you into truth. And then verse 14, Jesus says, but he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will glorify me. And I want to say to you that more than anything else, the primary role of the Holy Spirit is to bring glory and honor and worship and praise and adoration to the Lord Jesus Christ. More than anything else. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will glorify me. Meaning the Spirit working in you and I is going to always work to bring honor to Jesus. He's going to work in your life so that you would exalt Jesus more than anything else in us to transform us into be worshipers of Jesus. People who bring praise and adoration to Jesus in my marriage, in my parenting, in the workplace, how I relate to other people. Listen, if I'm on the ball field and that referee, that umpire blows it, I mean, they just blow it and miss it. And I go off on that, you're a bum. Now, are you blind? How did you, you need, if we just go off and start railing, you know? Listen, that, that's not glorifying Jesus. And instead of being filled with the Spirit, we're filled in the flesh, walking in the flesh. That's not honoring to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is not what God's Spirit wants us to do. We're railing at each other in our marriage. Hostile, holding on to things, grudges, bitterness, hurts, not, not communicating in the Spirit. It's, we're not glorifying Jesus. 
And third, what I want to end with from this text is one of the first ways that the Holy Spirit works in us is to bring forth a new spiritual birth. To bring forth a new birth in us. To, for God to give us new life. A man here in the text with great credentials approaches Jesus, a ruler, a teacher. He's very religious. He comes at night, Nick at night. That's what I always think about when I think about this text. He's drawn to Jesus. He's attracted to Jesus. Perhaps Nicodemus is in the process of emerging faith. God's working in him. The Holy Spirit is stirring him. The Holy Spirit is speaking in him to bring about faith. And notice in verse 2, Nicodemus is familiar with Jesus. Familiar with the signs, familiar with the works, the healings, his authority over nature and disease and demons, even authority over death and Nicodemus recognizes that for he says, no ordinary person can do the kinds of things that you are doing unless God is with them. And so he recognizes something pretty, pretty special about Jesus. And he's pretty special, church, amen? And Jesus provides this striking response back to him. It's not what Nicodemus expects. In verse 3, Jesus says this to, to Nicodemus, most assuredly, this is certain, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. Verse 4 makes it clear Nicodemus has no clue what he's talking about. <laughs> he says, what? What are you talking about? That's impossible. How can I or any other person enter back into our mother's womb and go through the birth process when you're older? He's a religious professional, an expert in the law. Being Jewish, he would have already believed that he was in God's kingdom. I'm already in the kingdom. What are you talking about? And now Jesus is saying something completely contrary to what he had been taught. Strange thing. This man from God is saying something that my grandparents taught me. Is incorrect. He's saying something that, my, that which, which my parents taught me is incorrect. He's telling me some things that when I went through rabbinical training, everything that he's saying is contrary to what I've taught and believed my entire life. What are you talking about? In verse 5, Jesus realizing that Nicodemus is confused and struggling with it, he, that their conversation is not on the same plane. He's thinking, Nicodemus is thinking on the physical plane and Jesus is thinking on the spiritual plane and so Jesus responds to him the second time and he says, Nicodemus, here, let me explain this to you. Unless one is born of water, unless one is born of the spirit, you, you'll, you'll never see the kingdom. You'll, you'll never come into the kingdom. And in verses six and seven, John then goes on to provide a commentary, or Jesus does, he records it, Luke does, or John does, what Jesus is trying to help Nicodemus understand. Nicodemus, why are you surprised by this? We're not talking about the same kind of birth. Nicodemus, you're, you're asking me about a physical birth, and I'm telling you about a spiritual birth. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. You've had a physical birth. You, I, have had a physical birth. Pinch yourself, right? That person who's nodding off, pinch them next to you. Right? We're, we're physically real. We've had a physical birth. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but we've all 
had one of these births, but then he says, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. It's a spiritual birth. And the Bible says most people, most people have not experienced a spiritual birth. Right? You remember Jesus said there's two different gates, two different paths, and he says few are going to go through the narrow gate and through the hard road that leads to eternal life. But he says many, most are going to go through a broad gate and a easy road that leads to destruction. And so most people that you are around and I'm around, and maybe even some of you this morning who are here, have never had a real spiritual birth. Jesus says, why do you marvel, Nicodemus, that I said to you, you must be born again? Why don't you understand this? Don't marvel, don't be surprised of the necessity of being born of the Holy Spirit. Why are you marveling at the reality of the new spiritual birth? So, so how? How does this work? How does this birth occur? Well, there's a process we know from Scripture. And, and so this is how your spiritual birth occurred. First, we start off, we are dead in our sins and trespasses before God, spiritually dead before God, lifeless before God. Ephesians 2 says and describes that Nicodemus was without hope, lost, dead in their trespasses and sin. He was a religious man, but he was still lost. No different than an unreligious person. Lost is lost, dead is dead. All men Romans 1 through 3, all three chapters, makes the point all of us are dead. Jew and Gentile, like there's none righteous, no, not one. None of us see God. We're just dead before God in our relationship. And then the Holy Spirit begins to work. And Jesus says he, he works like the wind. He moves like the wind. Verse 8, the wind blows wherever it wishes. And while you can hear the sound of the wind and you can even feel the effects of the wind, you really and I have no idea where it comes from, how it works. Certainly can't control where it's going to go. And that's true of the Holy Spirit. You and I never know when the Spirit is going to move. We certainly do not control the Holy Spirit. However, you can tell when He does. You can see the effects of the Holy Spirit. You can feel his presence and oh, what a change, what a difference. The, the moving and the working and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit makes in our lives. And so we're dead in our trespasses and sins, but when the gospel is shared or taught or testified or preached or demonstrated with words, the Holy Spirit will show up and the Bible says when he speaks, sinners like you and I hear his voice and begin to feel some conviction. Jesus said in John 3, 16, 3, and when the Spirit comes, when I send my replacement, He's going to convict you of sin. Whose sin? Your sin. He's going to convict you of righteousness. Whose righteousness? The perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to convict you of judgment. That you and I are sinners and that he's righteous and we're, con we're under condemnation. Judgment. And then Jesus said in John 6, 44, by the way, if you want to really study the work of the, and the person of the Holy Spirit, study the book of John even more than the book of Acts. I know the book of Acts, the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostle, but study John's gospel. And Jesus said in John 6, 44, when the Spirit comes, he will draw you. 
For he said, no man can come to the Father unless my spirit draws them, woos them, brings them in. Once the Holy Spirit begins to work, our responsibility is twofold. is to repent of our sins and to surrender our lives, to place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says if you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God and if you confess with your mouth that Jesus has been raised from the dead and you'll repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. You'll have this new birth. Let me ask you this morning, have you heard the Spirit's call? Have you felt the wind and the power of his conviction? Do you know that you've received this new birth, that you're born again, and that you're certain? You're certain? And if yes, I would ask you then further, is your spiritual birth just as real to you as your physical birth? Is there evidence? Is there assurance that your life has changed, that God has changed you? The Bible says when the Spirit indwells us and we're saved, Peter describes this new spiritual nature that he produces and births within us, and that new spiritual nature has new appetites. New appetites. And some of the old sinful things you once loved and craved begin to wane, and some of these new appetites that you have begin to replace the old. You know, you... You start being interested in the Word. And you start liking to hear preaching. And you're interested in the Bible. And you have, a, you have an appetite to go to church and worship. Not because you know you should, but you just, you just, you long to. You desire to. See, that's, the, that's evidence. That's assurance that you've been born again. Unbelief is a tragedy. The new birth is a necessity and it requires the person and the work of the Holy Spirit and it demands a response to repent. To say, God, I agree with you. I am a sinner and I deserve eternal separation from you because of my sins. I deserve condemnation. Eternal separation from you and hell. God, that's what I deserve. And so I agree with you. That's who I am. But God, I turn. I want to turn. And I, and I want to surrender my life. And God, if you'll have me, if you'll take me, if you'll forgive me, God, I'll, I'll surrender my life to you. That's faith. I'll give it all to you. I'll take up a cross. I'll serve you. I'll live for you. I'll die to self. I'll, I'll be yours. That's conversion. That's the new birth. That's discipleship. Now that's you to bow and pray with me as.